0: Hello, from the Moscone Center in San Francisco, California, this is the 2017 ASPN Annual Meeting Podcast, a discussion of the latest scientific and clinical advances presented at this year's annual meeting. My name is Ibrahim Shatat, Chair of the American Society of Pediatric Nephrology Communications Committee. I'll be your host, and with me, I have a wonderful panel to discuss today's meeting highlights.
1: Hello, this is Debbie Gibson, and I want to welcome you to the podcast from the third day of the ASPN meeting 2017 in San Francisco. If I can, I'll ask others to introduce themselves.
2: Hi, I'm Sandy Emerald, and I'm the ASPN program committee co-chair this year.
0: Hi, I'm JJ Zaritsky from AI DuPont Hospital for Children.
1: And I'm Debbie Gibson, and I'm a a pediatric nephrologist and professor at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor.
2: I had a a great day and was able to attend a lot of the sessions, but the one I'd like to um, update you on is uh, one of the um, sessions that I helped uh, organize, which uh, was co sponsored by the ASPN workforce sympo- or workforce committee excuse me um, we had a symposium um, Together with the workforce committee to explore novel and sustainable career paths in pediatric nephrology and this was an interesting session that was introduced by dr John Mann who does a lot of um, residency education and physician education and is really an expert in issues like um workforce retention and burnout he talked about um, specific challenges that we're facing in the workforce in nephrology um, some of the reasons why people uh, leave nephrology Um, some of the common ones mentioned were um, compensation um, some um, issues with um, you know geography limitations and and uh, such things some uh, patient some physicians feel very stressed by challenging patients. Um, In contrast, many also cited um, uh, a lot of satisfaction from patient interactions, so that was both on the positive and the negative list. Um, But Dr. Mahan cited um, a workforce survey that was published a few years ago. um, The first author was Dr. Primack, um, and that was um, a really nice um, resource for anyone that's interested in learning more about some of our current workforce issues. Um, After Dr. Mayan spoke, we had a series of uh, speakers, actually five, who have somewhat non-traditional careers in pediatric nephrology, and they each gave us a description of how they got there, and um, what things were challenging and uh, rewarding in their current roles. Our first speaker was uh, Patty CO Mayer. Um, She's in the DC area, and she works um, part-time as a clinician and so she talked a lot about some of the challenges with that and what part-time really means she has one day off a week um, and um, is still able to do um, some education and academics um, and has been much more um, active in our aspn membership um, and in several committees as well Um, gina marie barletta was our second speaker and she um, really has had quite the trajectory of her career she started out in basic science moved on to clinical research um, was in Phoenix working for an academic center, and about two years ago, switched to private practice. So she talked about some of the advantages. Um, some some of them included having more control over the decision making of her organization. Um, but she also talked about um, some of the things like you know needing to sort of know how to run a business and um, uh, not necessarily having the skill set to do that before she sort of embarked on it. Um, so that was another interesting and unique career. Um, Jesse Roach spoke to us about working for the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. He had also previously worked at the FDA. Um, he's actually adult and Pete's um, uh, nephrology trained, and he um, identified that you know he really was feeling kind of burnt out in his clinical position, which was one of the reasons that he switched to industry. He expressed that he felt undervalued um, at. The time that he was in the clinical role, and just you know, found himself not really enjoying patient care anymore. Um, he talked about um, how rewarding it is to work for the federal government, um, although challenging as well. He feels like he can make a difference um, in terms of population health um, rather than you know individual patients. Um, although he does miss individual direct care. Um, Lin Yao also spoke, she's uh, working at the FDA. Um, she was previously working as a clinical nephrologist as well and had kind of a, a similar um, list of uh, benefits and um, challenges um, as Jesse did. Um, but um, Lynn really encouraged us to all think about um, how we control our time and um, how we um make dis- a sort of I guess she actually challenged people and academics and division chiefs and leaders in our community um, to think about how we make our um, colleagues feel valued. Um, she did mention that most people start their jobs, like their first job for salary, but most people leave their jobs because they feel undervalued. So that was very insightful. Um, and then our last speaker was Dr. Hetul Kosinski, who was um, a, a pediatric nephrologist who trained at Yale and also did some basic science and now works for Achillean Pharmaceuticals, which is a small pharmaceutical company. And she's a medical lead and a team lead. And um, she said that it's just it's very challenging. She gets to learn a lot of medical science um, in a wide array of um, topics. She said that... Um, although as a pediatric nephrologist, you can't go be a cardiologist, you can be um, the medical lead for a cardiology trial. So she said that you know her work is really diverse, um, but she has um, a lot of opportunities to um, lead research endeavors. And she also thinks of herself as, as someone who's influencing population health. I think overall, the message was that we should choose whatever path uh, is aligned with our passions. Uh, Dr. Mayen stressed that um, in order to be satisfied with your career choices, you need to spend at least 20% of your time doing what you love. Um, so I really learned a lot, and I think the attendees did as well.
0: Uh, I'd like to start off the podcast thanking Sandy, because I have to say, this is one of the best PAS's I've been to, and I thought what was really unique about this PAS was really kind of shine through was, a lot of the sessions, uh, we brought in outside speakers. They weren't necessarily people from nephrology. And I thought that interaction, especially we're not talking about today, but that interaction during the cystinosis, FGF, was, was really incredible. Today I had the pleasure of uh, moderating the session called Kidney Imaging, to rad or not to rad, is that the question? And kudos to uh, Juan Cooperman for proposing this and actually getting it put through. He did a, he did a wonderful job of getting speakers. Um, So the first speaker was Aram Hartoon from CHOP, Sandy's CHOP, um, and she really reviewed very nicely uh, how the technology we have available to measure GFR and how good our estimates, and I thought was very unique about the session, was starting off looking at, she presented a patient who had low muscle mass and through the GFR calculator had four different GFRs, yet, you know, clearly one of them was correct and the others were off, um, and she went through some of the techniques. I think most of us as nephrologists are, are aware of them, but it was nice to have a nice, it was a good literature review looking at um, some, of the, um, some of the imaging stuff, such as Glowfill that most of us use versus Iohexol. Mm-hmm. So it, would, it ended up being a very kind of interesting comparison between the various um, studies with, you know, comparing them to the gold standard, which we really don't use in England, um, she also went on to look at some of the, the other radiographic techniques, which probably aren't ready for prime time in measuring GFR, but I think down the road we might, might start using, and that included some CT estimations and some possible MRI estimations of, of GFR. So that was a very good session. Uh, the second session was um, given by Shreyas, uh, and I'll try, to, I'll try not to butcher his last name, Vasana Wa- Vasanawala. Um, And he's actually uh, sort of an old friend of mine from, I graduated medical school from him, an extremely smart individual. Um, And he he went over MRI urography and functional MRI in children. And I thought it was a very good session uh, for us to get it. You know, a lot of times we order a scan, we're not completely, we don't completely understand the technology, what it's it's meant for, and we have to rely on our uh, radiologists to help us out. I thought he did a very nice job in talking to us in sort of nephrology terms, what the, tech, what the technology is, what its limitations are, and how they, they go through the scan. I thought one of the very interesting things was how, you know, what he recommended for for using the MR urogram was really precise anatomy, but it could also be used for function, like differential function, but you have to compromise whether you want to use it for function or for or anatomy. I think he went through a very nice um, discussion on that. Uh, what was especially impressive was how, I guess, right now manually they kind of they, they use this 3D imaging, and it can take up to 24 hours to process an MRI urography test, but uh, that um, computers are basically able to take over that task. So I think in, in the future we'll have this technology available, even at very small centers. Um, he then also talked a bit. It was, was nice. He didn't just focus on MRI urography, but talked about some other stuff. He talked about um, the use of famoxetal an iron-based contrast agent. Which we've talked about before, but he pre- presented some very nice indications for its use. Also talked about MRI um, time of flight, where you could actually image people's vessels without using any contrast. So a very nice uh, discussion. Uh, the next next was almost almost getting to science fiction with uh, Jesse Cortièr. I think he's from. Uh, UCSF I believe and by the way Shreyas was from Stanford Um, and he actually talked about this uh, unique technique Uh, it's called diffusion tensor imaging for monitoring of renal transplant rejection and it's not quite ready for prime time but basically he's able to use this imaging technique to look at the anatomy of uh, using MRI to look at the anatomy of the kidney and look for disruption of the normal architecture which you could imagine you could use to predict or use as a as a, as a technique to predict whether a patient had um, rejection or not. And he presented a study they had done where right before they had done, well, the, the, the patient underwent a biopsy to look for rejection. And then they imaged that exact area uh, and then sort of did a sensitivity analysis to see how, how well they could predict what either the, whether they had rejection or not or what the BAMF criteria. I think the end result was that it's not quite ready for prime time, but it, it holds future and you think about uh, what's gonna be available to us as the magnets get fancier and the imaging gets fancier. Uh, I think the most promise was basically two things. One is you know, maybe making that decision, are you gonna biopsy the patient in the first place? It won't, someone brought a very good point that it's not gonna help you differentiate between cellular and humor rejection, but also this idea of maybe being able to follow serial images of the kidney, especially looking for fibrosis, the progressive fibrosis of the kidney. And then someone brought up an excellent uh, point um, uh, Tuambi from uh, South Carolina brought up the point she was joking around that when she biopsies the kidney she always manages to hit the scar and how you could maybe pre-image the kidney to pick a good part of the kidney to actually try to biopsy and then finally we had a very nice uh, discussion uh, or presentation from uh, Lawrence Baskin who's a urologist at UCSF and I thought he gave a very practical um, view from a urology standpoint about the techniques he uses to make surgical decisions uh, he kind of went through the, the through a vast presentation of, of from mc mcd multicystic dysplastic kidney disease to signal signal kidney to a lot of sort of complex stuff and explained on his take on um, imaging and what what he uses. He presented some interesting data suggesting that and he 's going to obviously try to publish it on multicystic dysplastic kidneys that if you by by age two or three, if you see compensatory hypertrophy of the contralateral kidney, that, that the, the need to continue to monitor that patient for involution of the, of the bad kidney or the multi-cystic kid, dysplastic kidney, is, he didn't really feel was necessary. You still needed to follow them for, for uh, signal kidneys. I thought he also had a lot of kind of practical advice about how he's imaging children. Um, uh, now, for example, for someone who's born with, you know, do you do, still do the VCUG? He does for neonates and talked to, got a little bit into it about, you know, the uh, the topic which we you know, we spend a lot of time talking about reflux and presented his 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 uh, his view on it. But I thought overall the the um, it was nice having um, the outside speakers and it was just sort of a nice overview going over some basic imaging techniques to to mont- to measure GFR all the way through some kind of futuristic stuff to figuring out if we can figure out rejection without a biopsy. So it was, I thought it was, a, it was a really great session. And I will, I'll just, I'll tell everybody out there that I think that the, the sessions that we had at this PAS were just incredible for that fact of having some outside experts um, come in and, and talk.
1: John, welcome. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll bring you in in a moment so that you can introduce yourself and walk okay. us through uh, what was essentially your favorite session or your assigned session from today, if that's all right. So I'm Debbie Gibson. Uh, again, my, uh, it was my pleasure to speak at the Glomerular Disease um, Workshop and Novel Therapies. This was a particular session that was good for us as a professional society in many ways. It reminded us that we have a number of, of course, patients with rare diseases that are represented within our community and those patients with rare diseases oftentimes have what we would consider to be both suboptimal therapies, suboptimal outcomes, side effects that are generally unacceptable and untenable when you ask the patients and their families of what's happening today in their disease experience. But it also reminded us that as a discipline, we have therapeutic options that are being explored through mechanisms of action, through a case series, and, and then sometimes into clinical trials, but it reminds us to, di- to discipline ourselves to be able to be certain, to think that our next step should always be a clinical trial. To be certain that we're moving a therapy into a treatment domain where we have good evidence for safety, for dose, for efficacy, and importantly, where possible for product labeling so that we are absolutely able to prescribe in a way um, that allows a patient to access a therapy and have the payers feel comfortable that they are paying for uh, therapies that are reasonable and safe for the patient population. We talked about four specific examples in this particular session. Um, The first was talking about um, rituximab. And rituximab is an agent that has uh, really very commonly come into the disease and treatment experience of patients our children with nephrotic syndrome um, and other conditions, but oftentimes in that nephrotic syndrome domain. Um, This is a therapy that really came from uh, the world of oncology and moved through a case um, example, a case series, and then really quite late into our disease and treatment experience into clinical trials. And there have been still very few clinical trials in this particular space. And so what we would consider is that the experience really out distances the clinical trials today. And that therapy, again, still today does not have Uh, a place in product label for our patients with nephrotic syndrome. Uh, There are new agents. and The new agent also as a CD20 uh, mechanism of action, is ofrituzumab, it's a difficult name to say, but there we are, Um, and it's called a fully humanized monoclonal antibody, again developed for other disease entities, so the consideration is for drug repurposing concerns about that particular agent Um, for very minimal experience that has been published is more transfusion reactions are being reported and more serious transfusion reactions than uh, we're seeing with rituximab. Um, But there is a clinical trial that has uh, been designed and is preparing to launch, which is encouraging to the nephrology community to enroll approximately 140 children to randomize them between rituximab and noprituzumab to be able to assess the the relative ability to control patients with nephrotic syndrome. Um, Other agents that were explored during this session was one that was historical um, that gave us the historical view and also a chance to look ahead. So ACTH is an agent that was used in the 1950s for the treatment of children with nephrotic syndrome at a time when there were not really other therapies just following on the heels of things like good medical care from a dietary perspective, uh, good control of uh, infections with antibiotics that had just changed the life expectancy of a child in remarkable ways where mortality prior to antibiotics and good dietary control was about 60% in our children with nephrotic syndrome and diminished to about 40%. Then ACTH came uh, to the forefront and began to be used, and while uh, those uh, children that were exposed to ACTH appeared to have very good response to that therapy, um, it was felt by the end of the 1950s that uh, that therapy had, while good effect, also the expectation was relative equivalent effect from oral agents of prednisolone. And that really became what was described as the time where ACTH was put generally back on the shelf. And prednisone and prednisolone generally took over in that first line management of patients with nephrotic syndrome. Fast forwarding until the the 2015 and 2017 variety, folks have been looking at ACTH thinking about um, its potential to act at a melanocort receptor, Um, and that particular receptor pathway is a little bit complicated because it has uh, effects in many areas. And so the question really becomes which receptor uh, at what time, um, and is there a way to target that particular receptor outside of the the steroid-related effects of ACTH. That yet is futuristic and unknown. Um, ACTH is undergoing clinical trial testing in children with nephrotic syndrome today. Um, there is a trial called Atlantis that is enrolling and comparing ACTH um, against uh, children with um, with active uh, nephrotic syndrome, and the goal is to compare that to um, a treatment with prednisone as an episodic treatment during flares, um, so that that. This particular clinical trial has been ongoing for about two years and continues to have a significant patient population to enroll, but the hope is that that will provide additional uh, current-day information about ACTH therapy. Additional um, options for uh, management of um, nephrotic syndrome were also explored using a humanitarian uh, device called um, LDL apheresis. This particular device was approved for use and in very specific in children with FSGS under humanitarian circumstances for children who have a preserved GFR or children who are post-transplant with recurrence. Um, this is a very specific way that this particular device can be used, and it can be used because it's under IRB approval, a patient family is consented, they have the right uh, qualifying characteristics, they're provided educational material, the devices are actually used in a very specific way, and the experience of those patients are actually reported back, and that allows the FDA to be able to monitor those devices and the ways that that particular agent or device is being able to be used and be effective in this pediatric population. Um, It is a limited release for this particular device, and that becomes really important, And while the review of the available information uh, was, uh, was brought to bear during this particular session, the numbers of patients for children with nephrotic syndrome who've been exposed to this particular device are very few and uh, mostly in Japan, the origin of the device. And so there's much to learn about this particular device, and there was encouragement of the pediatric nephrology community to really use this device responsibly, to report the information responsibly so that we can all have a collective learning moment. There certainly is an ongoing study, and this, again, requires consent and uh, and data collection, and, and again, For each of these sessions, the goal, or presentations, the goal was to collectively work as a community to generate data to help us to make better decisions going forward. We talked a little bit about ecoluzumab and C3G, and this particular agent and other agents that work in the, the complement mediated space is actually quite an important agent that we have talked about. And again, this ultra rare disease. And, um, and again, clinical trials are ongoing for these agents um, and additional novel agents were identified. This becomes an incredibly important topic because eculizumab has a need for more clinical trials a need uh, for clinical trials in the pediatric space or as a pediatric and adult combined clinical trial. So we might consider that to be a lifespan trial opportunity that needs to be conducted so that, again, our uh, society can act responsibly in the prescribing of these medications. And finally, we talked about Abaticep which is a therapy which uh, works against the CD80 as a target. And uh, Abadisept, again, is under investigation as a clinical trial, a testing uh, children and adults with FSGS with active disease. Uh, this particular um, agent is under study uh, with a crossover design, and uh, with the goal in, in this particular uh, idea is to identify patients who have the ability to respond to therapy with a, with a goal to minimize, essentially, side effects uh, by the exposure to our traditional medications. Of corticosteroids and calcium inhibitors and all the other agents that we're quite used to. So, again, that study is open um, in the United States and actively enrolling. And our hope is that uh, that particular trial, like all the other uh, drugs that are under study today in the pediatric nephrology space, has an opportunity to enroll promptly, um, that answers can be generated. And that uh, we can really inform the future uh, prescribing, practice and management of our patients with uh, pediatric rare kidney diseases.:
0: It was kind of a very lively discussion based on the fact that we use a lot of drugs off label. Um, and really, the, 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 the theme was the need to really study these drugs in a very controlled, or devices that can be a matter of that in a very prospective, controlled manner, so that we can really get usable information, not these one-off cases, anecdotal uh, stuff. And I, I will put a little plug in for the liposorber study that I'm a co-PI on, uh, and you can read about it on the on the um, uh, clinicaltrials.gov if you're interested in. Uh,
3: uh, it really does come down to pediatric nephrologists giving up their certainty, which is in many cases undeserved certainty. And, and giving up control, because to enroll a patient in a clinical trial means you don't necessarily get the, the treatment that you might prefer for your patient, but you have to recognize the, the good for the community of patients, um, and, and, and I think that will take a little bit of a frame shift.
1: I think sometimes we are, as a society, our own worst enemies because it's our responsibility to um, select and prescribe therapies for our patients where we have a real knowledge of their safety and their int- expected efficacy um, and their long-term, uh, long-term impact on prognosis. And when we don't school ourselves to really stop when a new um, agent or a new mechanism is discovered and stop and say, gee, this is an opportunity for us as a society to collectively come together and design a trial that's worth conducting, and then really inviting our patients to be able to participate in that trial, to generate information to help us to really prescribe best for them, for this generation and generations to come. That takes discipline. Other professional societies are able to, to achieve that and I'm certain that the pediatric nephrologists in North America are similarly able to do that.
3: It's almost like we, we need to do an autopsy for, on clinical trials that didn't work To figure out where the lesions are, and and to inform all of us in pediatric nephrology, um, as practitioners as well as individuals that might be interested in developing trials, uh, where the weaknesses are. You know what, what what what. Things should not be repeated, Absolutely. right? Right, Deb. That's I mean, right. it's like Absolutely. like this. This trial didn't work. There's, there's, there's. Right. It, it, we need to do an autopsy. Exactly.
1: Or we can consider that to be a lean project. We can yes. get right on that. Yes. Yes.
2: I think there was a common theme today. Um, in Dr. In that session in the morning, Dr. Smoyer sort of wrapped it up, challenging us all to um, push ourselves forward. And he emphasized working uh, early in the process with the FDA. And then later, in the novel Career Paths, um, Dr. Lin Yao showed a slide um, in which she demonstrated that um, most trials take, it takes about nine years in children for a drug, once it comes out and people sort of start using it, um, to get actually approved for children. And she said that her job is to, and as other pediatricians that, that work at the FDA, they're really focusing on reducing that time from something coming out and being available to actually knowing that it's safe and um, how to use it appropriately and and safely for children. Um, And so that was really a a common thread today, um, which was, it was funny to see it sort of at the beginning of the day and then it came up again at the end of the day. And um, Dr. Yao really encouraged us to sort of reach out to her. You know, she's on our side. And um, she's really trying to foster some collaboration so that we do um, sort of make these discoveries and um, advance science in, in a, um, a scientifically rigorous way, but in a way that's safe and efficacious for our kids. And, <laughs>
3: yeah. so and, and to your, and your point, Sandy, uh, Sandy um, the gap between adult Uh, indication of pediatric indication was nine years back in the early 2000s and fast forward to you know the recent five years it's still nine years so it's not been narrowed at all
0: John could you give a plug for the the leadership course that Sandy and I just went through and we're we're huge fans of and I want everybody out there in the internets as my mother calls it sorry mom
3: Thanks, JJ. Actually, you probably need to be doing the plug. So, yeah, this is John Mann in Pediatric Nephrology at Nationwide Children's. And as JJ just teed it up for me, uh, we did announce that we will be doing our fourth cohort of the ASPN Leadership Development Program. This uh, group (coughs) is a cohort uh, process um, where individuals that uh, sign up and are accepted uh, move through a series of activities focused around Uh, live uh, leadership development sessions that coincide with ASN starting in this 2017 uh, with the second session at next year's PAS-ASPN session in 2018 culminating in the final ASN 2018. During that time uh, the individuals participating uh, receive a uh, leadership development competency 360 which many of our participants said was the real nugget was, was the ability to get get a a real look at their competencies through the eyes of others, and and to get the help of our executive coach who works with each of of our uh, leadership development participants to work on gaps in their their, uh, leadership competencies. But in addition, with uh, the addition of a mentored project and a mentorship group uh, with the third cohort, I think we've had, we've seen even more engagement with the activity. So we clearly want the participants to gain more knowledge about leadership um, content and understanding skills, but we also want to see them get a chance to put some of that into practice and develop some skills. So so yeah, we've had 38 individuals go through the, the first three cohorts and, and uh, it's been uh, actually Three of uh, those graduates are sitting in, 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 at this table right now, so, so yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Ibrahim was in the first cohort, I yes. think, yeah, first cohort, yeah.
1: That's fabulous. Well folks, I wanna thank you so much for spending your evening today to summarize day three of ASPN 2017. You did a fantastic job representing um, both your experiences, your sessions, and uh, making sure that we had a lively discussion. Thank you so much and enjoy the rest of the meeting.